Welcome back to the Heart Podcast, everyone. My name is Omar Omendia, and I'm a second-year doctoral student studying education policy at the University of Connecticut. I'm so grateful to be a co-host and co-producer to take you on this exciting journey, and I'm very grateful to kick off our third season. I'm here with my boss and colleague, Dr. Frank Tewitt, who will share a little bit more about his role at UConn. Passing it over to you, Frank. Thank you, Omar. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Frank Tuitt, and I will be co-hosting and co-producing the podcast this season while Dr. Milagros Castillo Montoya is on sabbatical. A little about me. I'm the Chief Diversity Officer and a professor at the University of Connecticut, where I teach in the Department of Educational Leadership. I'm joined by Omar, who is the co-host and co-producer of this podcast. Thanks, Frank. We hope everyone had a restful winter break and are ready to engage in further exploration and learning about anti-racist teaching in higher education. For this third season, we're continuing our conversation about anti-racist teaching in applied fields. We are excited to engage in these conversations and hope you are too. While Dr. Milagros Castillo Montoya is on sabbatical this calendar year, we plan to have a variety of faculty affiliates join us as co-hosts and co-producers, so stay tuned. Joining us for our conversation today is Dr. Dean Squire who is an associate professor and the founding associate dean of diversity for the School of Nursing at Loyola University, Chicago. Dean is a critical higher education and student affairs scholar whose work is dedicated to pursuing interdisciplinary anti-oppressive scholarship for the purposes of socially just institutional transformation. Also joining us today is Dr. Bianca Williams, who is an Associate Professor of Anthropology, Women and Gender Studies, and Critical Psychology at the Graduate Center at CUNY. Her research interests include Black women, travel, and emotional wellness, race, gender, and equity in higher education, and Black feminist, pedagogical, and organizing practices. While in her role at CUNY, Bianca encourages graduate students and faculty to think broadly about the utility of public scholarship in a variety of careers, reimagining doctoral education as a process of wellness and wholeness. Doctors Williams, Squire, and Tewitt are the co-editors of the book Plantation Politics and Campus Rebellions, Power, Diversity, and the Emancipatory Struggle in Higher Education. This volume, published by SUNY Press, provides a multidisciplinary exploration of how plantation politics are embedded in the everyday workings of the universities, including its curriculum, pedagogy, and more. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. So very excited to have uh, some really, really good colleagues and collaborators in this work uh, with with us today and happy to be uh, joining in this uh, co-facilitator role with my my colleague and and student and and just partner in the work, Omar. So uh, welcome to all of you and Kelly for helping us get get organized here. I wanted to to just do a quick shout out. Uh, We're going to get started here with the conversation uh, in, in the spirit of the pod, uh, the heart podcast, we really focus on anti-racist teaching and anti-racist pedagogy. And much of my thinking around this work has been informed by both uh, my colleagues, Dean, Dean and, and Bianca here. I'm actually gonna call you by your formal names, Dr. Dean Squire and Dr. Bianca Williams. And, and much of that work has really um, led to 
the series of collaborations we've had moving forward. So uh, I wanna begin this conversation by asking both of you to reflect a little bit on what anti-racist teaching is to you. Uh, as you think about it, as you put it into practice, how do you, how do you think about it and, and what is it to you? And either one of you can jump. Looks like it's been handed to Dan. Uh, <laughs> I guess I, I think of it, it's, okay, it is to me um, actually a pretty, I think, complex form of teaching um, that is not something that you're just sort of like, hey, I showed up into the classroom and all of a sudden I'm this like anti-racist teacher because I have um, good intentions, right? Like good intentions don't lead to great outcomes sometimes. Um, so I guess one of like the core um, tenets, if you will, of anti-racist teaching for me is the centering of Black, Indigenous, and other student of color voices in the class. Um, and that's in the curriculum. Obviously, that's examples. That seems like super basic, but I think that is like kind of the basic foundation of how I think about that. The second kind of level is obviously you're taking an intersectional examination of, you know, whatever your subject is, really examining power, privilege, and oppression. Um, and I sort of then kind of, I guess, have these other pieces that I try to make sure that I'm considering throughout my practice as well, um, which is making sure that those students in your class, black students, other students of color, um, actually can be heard in the space and actually understood um, when they're sharing their stories or providing um anecdotes or research or whatever the case might be right that we're really listening to and understanding what is being said in front of us um and not just sort of hearing words um so, so i guess those are some pieces around just sort of like listening um and basic like inclusion to me when it comes to anti-racist teaching um and then i think there's some sort of like more nuanced pieces to doing the work too sort of the pedagogy pieces that are sort of happening in the moment while you're teaching the class. Um, and some of those are um, maybe like protecting students of color from like racist thoughts and actions that are happening within the classroom space. So really identifying like what that person said is racist, maybe they don't realize it is. Let's like, let's sort of unpack that a little bit. Um, and ensure that the students of color feel like safe in that space um, and ready to continue in that space um, and engage fully, right? And sometimes that might mean like removing the person who made that comment um, or stopping the conversation altogether. Um, so it can kind of look different sort of based on the situation, I think. Um, another part of that to me too is I think um, making sure that students of color Feel like they have permission to speak, I guess, in a way, you know, like, I think when we're in classroom spaces, obviously, this educational systems are really set up to center, like the teacher as the knower, right? We have this, this whole Frarian thing. It's not not new necessarily, but in reality, right? Like, um, when a lot of students, particularly maybe first generation college students, um, students of color, etc, people who are maybe newer to the space or newer to um, these college classroom settings, um, sometimes they feel like maybe they don't have the right to speak um, or show up as a full person. And I know that was true for me, um, being a first generation uh, student of color as well, um, and sort of thinking about like, 
just like, what am I allowed to do? What can I do? Um, what am I allowed to be? Like, who can I be as, you know, now a faculty member, as an administrator? When I did grow up, even though I grew up in Miami, right? I grew up also in a place that doesn't have a lot of like Asian American people, um, even though Miami is, you know, pretty um, diverse in all kinds of ways. So I never had those faculty members that were Asian or teachers or anything like that. And so I never knew that like I could speak up or that I could be a faculty member, or I could, you know, be an administrator until later on in my life. And so just making sure that students um, are not sort of um, subsumed under like white supremacist notions of like um, imposter syndrome or feeling inferior in some way in the classroom. And sometimes that's what I mean by permission, I guess, like um, making sure that they know that they belong in the space They're They've worked hard to be in the space. They've done just as much, if not more than other people to be in that space. Um, so some of it is sort of that like interpersonal component as well. There's some other things I'll stop there, but I'll throw it to Bianca. Uh, I appreciate that. And I, I want to come back to some of your notions around safety and creating space and, and prioritizing voice. Bianca. So I think Dan and I share um, some similar kind of principles and approaches. Um, specifically for me, uh, and I've written about radical honesty in one of the books that um, Frank has edited um, with Taylor Haynes and Saran Stewart. Yes. In a learning environment. Yes. Thank you, because I know folks may want to go and read the excellent chapters that are um, in that book from all over the globe. So if you're interested in anti-racist teaching, um, inclusive pedagogy, I would invite you to read that book. But I wrote a chapter on radical honesty, which I think is my anti-racist approach to the classroom, both like the pedagogy, the theory behind it and the actual method. Um, and for me, that comes from centering Black folks in the classroom, um, Black folks theory in the classroom, particularly Black women, um, cis and trans. And it comes from my training in Black studies, um, uh, in uh, Af uh, Africana studies, Caribbean studies, and anthropology and women and gender studies. So I center Black feminist theory in all my courses, regardless of what the topic is, um, with the awareness that anti-racist teaching is part of that canon. Um, and so radical honesty specifically um, is about four things that's kind of focused on. One, it's an awareness that the classroom is a political space and that higher ed is a white supremacist, patriarchal, transphobic, homophobic space. And so if we're in the classroom, then we're in all of that. Um, and we have to be kind of explicit and aware of how those structures and oppressions affect what's happening in the classroom. Um, so that's the first thing. The classroom is a political space. It is a gender making and race making space and to be aware of that. Um, the second thing is, as an anthropologist, what drew me to anthropology was the valuing of personal narrative um, and personal experience. And so in my classroom, as a part of my anti-racist um, teaching, uh, valuing all of the personal experience that we bring to the classroom and using it as a case study is part of the work that we do. So it's not opinion, right? It's not just I went to this public school and it was racist because I experienced this, but it's I experienced this and let's figure out what factors created the environment that allowed me to experience that, right? So connecting students' personal experience and my personal experience with the text that we're reading and the theory that we're making. 
um, personal narrative, allowing students to write about their lives and use the critical tools that we're learning and creating to assess what's happening. And so, you know, sometimes we get questions. Um, I know as a first generation student, I had a question of like, can I use I in the essay or in the paper, right? Like in my classroom, that's encouraged because I is a central location of where analysis can happen, right? So personal narrative is essential to theory making. And those two things are not separate or, you know, um, experience is part of what the theory making process is. And then the last thing is, um, that emotion is a form of knowledge, that it can be a form of raw data that can be create that use utilized to create knowledge. And so in an institution where um, intellect is often talked about as like rational and neutral and not emotional, for me, anti-racist theory, particularly because of the gendered and the feminist lens I bring in, um, emotion is actually central to how we create meaning and analysis of the world. So by censoring Black women, by censoring Black people, if you go into any barbershop, which Melissa Harris-Perry has studied, if you think about um, the theory that you learned from your mom or your grandma when they were analyzing white supremacy in their neighborhoods, like KSA Layman would say, the worst of white folks, right? Those are theories <laughs> and they come from feelings and narrative and experience. And so in my classroom, emotion is central to how we create knowledge. Appreciate that. You both touched on this a little bit, and, and so I, I want to I circle back. But could you say a little bit more about what was the genesis for sort of thinking about anti-racist teaching? Both of you have been doing this work before it was cool to do it, right? So what was the genesis for it? What got you interested in thinking about conceptualizing, whether it's radical honesty or and I know some of your earlier work around inclusive teaching more broadly. What was the impetus for that? So I'll just say off top before I respond to your actual question, it might be cool to do it, but it would be nice to have it resourced and valued as part of the promotion process in higher ed. So I'll just say that off top, um, we may do it and it's cool and it's useful and effective and like our students love it and our colleagues may love it, but it would be nice structurally if it was actually valued. Um, so this came from, at least for me, radical honesty and thinking deeply about anti-racist and feminist ways of teaching came from being a student in higher ed, first generation, um, African-American and Jamaican, uh, working class, um, you know, pre now kind of hesitantly middle class and figuring out what that means. Um, Christian, uh, you know, heterosexual, like all of my identities, right? Trying to figure out how to navigate both the physical space of higher ed and the culture of what it means to be um, an undergrad and graduate student at what are pretty elite and predominantly white institutions. So that was first, it was my experience that led me to think deeply about why was I feeling the way that I was feeling as I was learning the things that I was learning and somehow the things I was learning that were, that were critical like analyses of race and gender weren't lining up with how necessarily I was being taught or necessarily what was happening in the campus environment. So I, sometimes I had great teachers, but the rest of my environment felt terrible. So when I decided to be a professor, um, particularly at the University of Colorado, which I knew was like, I don't know, maybe 1% Black um, out of 30,000 students, I knew that being a Black professor on that campus meant that my race in particular was going to be very present. And I wanted to figure out a way to teach that was genuinely, genu genuinely me, 
that I didn't have to put on a performance. Um, and I think we all do it as professors, we have performances, but I wanted to be able to bring my whole self to the classroom if I chose to, and to be able to teach through that. Um, and so that's what led me to anti-racist teaching, wanting me to be comfortable in the classroom and wanting my students to be comfortable and have a process where they could be affirmed in the classroom. Similarly, but different uh, to Bianca. You know, it, it I think it did stem from, you know, obviously my upbringing, my identities, um, but in the sense that I don't think I ever really understood what it meant to be an Asian American person. Um, and so even though I always, you know, I guess I identified as Vietnamese, you know, because my mom's side of the family is and I am uh, as well, but it was never really spoken about or, you know, the immigration story was never really shared. The language wasn't spoken in our home. Um, my mom really tried to like Americanize herself and therefore us. Um, and also I never, once again, saw myself really in the classroom space or even in really the community where I, you know, where I lived. Um, I had one, <clears throat> one of my best friends and, uh, an Asian woman, Korean woman, and we would always just say like we were brother and sister and like people believed us because there were so like few Asian people in the school that we could just say that and it was like true. Um, so I, I don't think I really came to really think about anti-racist teaching until I kind of moved into uh, obviously like graduate school, particularly like my PhD program, um, where I really had the chance to just like think about all of that um, and think about it alongside you know, my peers were all uh, men of color, queer, mostly queer men of color, like inside our cohort. Um, and really just sort of explain like, or explore kind of what it meant to be a queer man of color, like in higher education, in society, um, in relation to other, other people. Um, and then sort of from that point, you know, maybe quote unquote, becoming just a little bit more like radicalized <laughs> around this topic and being like, I don't, care what people think about me and how I teach. Like, I'm going to teach about these topics. I'm going to teach about race and racism, and I'm going to tell people what I think about it, and we're going to read books about it. And I don't care what my evaluations say. We're going to, you know, do all the things that we talked about in the first question, right? Um, and, you know, I don't know if that's like the best way to go about doing this work or getting interested in doing it, but it's what I did, and it's what I, you know, what I live with. And um, I think for me, it's more important that my students of color felt seen in the classroom space, that they that they were able to read about themselves as early as possible and have those conversations and you know, like Bianca said, like show emotion and you know, do all of that work as soon as possible. Like as soon as they had, you know, their first person of color, their first black professor in graduate school, you know, whoever it might have been um, in the places that I worked. Um, I guess that's sort of that experience is sort of what um, what led me to to teaching in this way. And for me, it's just sort of maybe initially it was something that I made sure I was very intentional about practicing, right? Like I'm going to do try this thing or this set of um, things this semester and see what works. And then I'm going to keep testing them and kind of molding them to what I'm learning and who the students are and kind of how maybe that practice functioned um, until I get it right, you know, and for me, it always sort of took like a couple of years of teaching a class to make sure that I felt like I had that syllabus that made the most sense that I had those 
um, assignments that, you know, centered all of those pieces of motion and life and um, also the academics and the, the books that we're reading and whatever it might be. Um, and now that I've been teaching now for, well, post-grad since 2015, but I've been teaching undergraduate since 2005, um, I feel like I'm just sort of naturally do those things now. It's just part of like who you are. Um, you sort of live with those those components of anti-racist teaching that um, both Bianca and I spoke about. Yeah, I, I love the connection between identity and 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 pedagogy that you are both making. Uh, so it, it raises this question, and we talked a little bit about this in in other spaces. But uh, what's the cost of 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 showing up in the classroom the way you do? What's the cost of engaging in anti-racist pedagogy? Yeah, um, I think there are a lot of costs. Um, so I, I said earlier that for me, I really wanted to, to be able to bring my whole self to the classroom and bring all the parts of me that I wanted to be present um, because I felt like graduate school was such a hazing process and a socialization process where I had like parts of myself were broken up or I wasn't allowed to show parts of myself in this goal of becoming a scholar, right? Like certain parts of myself were, I was penalized or like they were shunned by folks. Um, and so I wanted my teaching experience to be different as a professor. What I've learned from my undergrads and my graduate students, and, you know, time changes everything. I think even, I mean, I'm not that old. I'm still pretty young, <laughs> but a lot has changed in the past even decade and a half and even the past five years. Um, and particularly in the last five years since the movement for Black Lives, what I hear from my undergrads and what I hear from my grad students, particularly my grad students who are instructors, is I don't want to bring my whole self to the classroom. Like they, like the institution in higher ed does not deserve my whole self. Um, that actually great costs come with bringing all of who I am to the space. And so I think some of the costs are when you're a person of color, when you're a person who is marginalized in structural ways in higher ed, and you show up authentically and fully yourself, you know, it's not only great critique, but there can be great pushback, um, resistance, um, various forms of like punishment um, for bringing who you, who you are. And I, when I talk to grad students about radical honesty and inclusive pedagogy, I also hear um, like grad students don't have the same power that we have as tenured faculty or as tenure track faculty, right? So figuring out how to do anti-racist teaching, figuring out how to push the students in the class who are just espousing white supremacy in that position when you have such little power as an instructor is really difficult. And so there are a variety of costs that can happen um, depending on your positionality. So I think I think it's important to, to yes, bring up identity, but there's also the awareness of positionality and power, right? And that different instructors, different people standing in front of the classroom or sitting in a circle in the classroom have different costs that they're going to experience in doing this work. Yeah, that's, you know, snaps for all that. And I think, so Frank, when we started the Plantation Politics project, you asked me, right? Like you're, at that point, I wasn't even on the tenure track, right? Like, are you okay with doing this work? Like, have you thought about what it means? Um, I think Bianca, you were pr maybe pre-tenure at that point. Um, 
and you know as i said i sort of just like after grad school i was just like yeah i don't like i don't care what people are going to think about me and what i want to say like i want to say the things that matter um but i think you know now what is it six years later like it has had really i think detrimental impact on my life um and so you know it's it's definitely not rosy right so like after i left denver and the postdoc um i went to iowa state university and um, and it, it seems really minor, but that was when we were sort of really ramping up um, plantation politics, like presenting it, um, publishing on it and all that kind of stuff, right? So I was, it was also just like a big part of my research identity, like what we were doing just in general. And so I was talking about it a lot and um, it seems like menial, but every new faculty member at Iowa State gets like a, um, a story in the newsletter in this, in this uh, School of Education newsletter, right? And it goes out to, you know, whoever's on that listserv. I did the photo shoot. I did the interview. It was laid out. I, I looked at proofs and then it was pulled as soon as like the dean learned about what I was writing about, plantation politics. Um, <clears throat> And there, you know, there's some other stuff happening too. They were like, it was the department head they called her, but um, we were hiring a new dean for the entire uh, department, uh, health and human services piece, and um, we're also hiring a new president at that point. And so they didn't want to like write a story about somebody calling universities plantations. They didn't want that out there as like the image. Um, so you know, that was like the first piece where I was like, okay, like I'm super pissed about this, but like whatever, it's a story, people know who I am still, like that's, that's you know, what I'm about. The next year, you know, they're hiring for a tenure track job and I'm just a visiting on a two-year contract at this point. Um, I don't even get an interview, right, for this position. And I have pretty much perfect teaching evaluations. I've had them my entire career. Um, you know, I'm obviously like publishing like crazy, presenting, you know, everywhere and, I don't even get a an interview for it, right? And so I'm like, okay, well, they clearly like don't want me here. Everybody gets an interview if you're a visiting professor, pretty much at the institution that you're at. Like, if you don't get one, something is wrong. So it, clearly something was wrong, right? And I wanted to leave anyway, um, because I do not like Iowa. Um, but it's sort of, I think it's, in some ways, it like stunted my career a bit, right? Because I started on the tenure track later. Um, it sort of made me, it really hit me personally, right? Like I went into a really um, deep depression that I'm still dealing with and it started that year. Um, and then I, you know, I, I just had to leave and I took another job that wasn't really great for me either. And it was a tenure track job, but it was in the middle of nowhere. It was mo mainly, you know, white folks in the school a dean who just didn't get what I was doing, no critical scholars in the entire school, but I just had to get out. And so I felt like that also sort of stunted my professional development. And because it also stunted my personal health, my mental health and physical health and all of those pieces, that then also negatively impacted my professional like career and my ability to just focus on things. So I'm basically just saying that like, when you do this work, there can be really negative impacts, not just on sort of um, an evaluation or somebody um, valuing that you, you know, teach through an anti-racist framework, but really on like your whole self. Um, and this past year, it's really what led me to essentially like leaving the field, if you will. Like I'm not 
technically in higher ed and student affairs anymore. I don't teach those classes. I'm just finishing some projects in that space that I kind of don't even want to finish. Um, and now I'm kind of in an administrator role where I get to just kind of like do my own thing. Um, and I don't have to be bothered by all that stuff. Um, I'm not tenured. I am on the tenure track, but you know, I'm also in a whole different discipline. It's just, you know, it's, it's been this kind of like weird windy life that I've lived in the last few years that have really negatively, um, impacted, like. Who I am, what I think about the academy, what I think about research, the worth of it all. Um, like Bianca said, like how much I give to it, you know, I show up and I leave. I show up at the time I'm supposed to show up and I leave at the time I want to leave. Right? I don't care if I'm doing a DEI job. I'm not giving my life to this job. I'm giving my time that I'm paid for to this position. And if it doesn't get done, it doesn't get done till the next day. And don't text me after hours, right? Like, and I let people know that, like, that's the life I want to live now, but that was the result of, I don't know, maybe giving up hope, right? Like giving up all that stuff that I told people to have and not being able to do it myself. Right. But because of kind of everything that was happening around me. So, you know, that's where I am at this point, I guess. Can I say something real quick? Yeah. Frank? I know you might want to transition, Frank, but um, I just want to say real quick that so many, like I feel Dean right now. I'm definitely in the space where he is. And also I think so many of the folks that I know that are deeply invested in anti-racist teaching, leadership, like justice, transforming higher ed, especially during the pandemic, especially in the past two years. Mm -hmm. So many of us are so burnt out from everything <laughs> that is happening because some of the burnout that people are experiencing now, we've been doing for almost our entire like career in higher ed, right? So like the constant awareness of all of the oppressions that are operating, the constant trying to you know, if not prove yourself worthy, but like be like, I, I belong here. Um, the constant wanting desire to make it better for the people behind you and like create space for things that you didn't like that weren't made for you. I think we experienced a burnout. And so I just wanted to name the emotional costs of this work because I think it's something that's so often belittled, even in spaces where people take mental and emotional wellness seriously, we haven't come up with really good, not even um, tools or techniques for like wellness, but like structural ways of talking about and dealing with the emotional impact of doing anti-racist work in white supremacist spaces. Um, and it has only been heightened in the past two years. And since we have no idea when this moment of the pandemic or when this really um, uh, kind of explicit and spectacular moment of police violence will be going away. Like we're, we're just kind of in a stand, like in a, in a, in a holding pattern. Um, and it's taking, that's the emotional cost. We can talk about the wins and the victories later, but I, I wanted to emphasize and, and affirm and support Dean's kind of story. Yeah, and especially if you're the only one, right? Like at NAU, I was the only one. I was doing basically this job for free and also getting paid nothing, but also trying to try and, you know, we always say like people of color have to do like two times as much to get half as far. I was trying to do like four times as much to get 
started, you know, and nobody gave. A Sorry, I don't know if we can curse. Nobody cared that I was doing that in in that school, right? Like people cared. My friends cared. The people in the field cared. You know, quote unquote cared. Whatever, right? But like where I was trying to go with my professional career, nobody cared. Um, and like that can only last so long before you're like, I got to get out of here. And you know, I would have I. I had probably four times as many publications to get tenure at NAU than I needed. I would be a full professor like twice there. Um, and I gave that up to leave because it wasn't healthy in any way. Um, and so now I'm just sort of in this like limbo space. I actually want to stay with this, this theme around the emotional cost. Um, it, it's one that I don't think the three of us have talked about in relationship together. I, I'm sure there have been individual conversations, but as as the editors of this project and the contributors of uh, uh, the plantation politics, we'll, which we'll come back and unpack later, uh, I don't think we've had a chance to talk about the cost of it. And, and, and from the perspective of, you know, the labor, from the perspective of it not being valued, I think I want to add one other dimension to it, which is uh, the the cost of uh, diving deeply into work that you've committed to doing, and uh, at least for me, how that process uh, exposed the ways in which we were being exploited, right? And then having to reconcile that, right? So, as you know, my part in the in the chapters about the CDO role and the ways in which I was both writing about it, living it, and reconciling the ways in which I was complicit in some of the th very things I was trying to disrupt and how that became a regular part of my engagement with my therapist around how do I make sense of that, right? So, uh, I think we don't give enough attention to this, uh, um, the cost of doing anti-racist work. I know for a fact our institutions don't, uh, they don't account for it as a part of the labor. They haven't figured out how to support folks in doing this labor. Uh, and when we do do it, as Bianca pointed out, or as Dan lived out in, in his situation, it's not valued. Uh, so I guess for the folks who are listening to this podcast, uh, what's the what what suggestions do we have for them as they because this work is not going to go away. You both have talked about various strategies, whether it's don't text me after five. Uh, Bianca, you and I have talked about who you're accepting invitations from now to engage in this work. Well, so what are some strategies uh, that you would offer the folks about this? How to navigate this, yeah. Um, so what you're referencing is for me, a huge, like, I don't know what happened on this day, but a huge breaking moment for me was January 6th. Like I remember, sitting at my computer and I was probably working on a paper or something. I was writing something and Twitter like exploded with what was happening at the Capitol. And I turned on a TV and something about the images 
of white folks in their true entitlement and audacity going <laughs> to DC and just, just taking up space and entering spaces that I knew as someone who organized with my BLM chapter in Denver, as someone who has participated in public demonstrations of resistance and social action, that if me and even 10 of my colleagues or my comrades from BLM had done any of that, we would have been shot or arrested in the street. Something about that disconnect between the globe watching white privilege and white supremacy in action and people just standing by and letting it happen or facilitating it, like there was a break. And I remember, and, and it was also the moment where like all of our institutions were coming out with their statements about supporting BLM. And I was like, show me the money. Like this means nothing to me because at this point I've been doing this organizing work with collectives for so long and the statement doesn't do anything for me. Your cluster hires that will disappear in five years don't mean anything to me. Like show me where your real commitment is. And in that moment, it was like all of the DEI work that I had done, I just couldn't do it anymore. Like I, I couldn't, like I literally, like my physical body in this moment shuts down when I think about doing that work because I realized how much time and energy it cost. It took me to be in the room with folks to teach them about their white supremacy and to hope and like try to teach tools to be particularly white folks, better white folks with a, a white racial, like a white anti-racist consciousness. And to know that so many of those folks were in DC doing what they were doing, right? Like that my hours and decades of labor probably meant something to a few people and I'm like that that's valuable to me and that structurally or in the long term it doesn't feel like it did enough um and so literally on that day and since that day I have actively decided no yeah no I'm only investing my time and energy in spaces that center black folks like I just can't do it anymore I, if, if if black folks are not central to this thing then I'm probably not going to do it anymore and it's it's a bit hard to be honest. There was a, a, I don't know if grief is the right word, but it was an identity shift in some ways. And it was a commitment shift in some ways because when I went to Colorado, I knew Colorado, Colorado is a white state. It's a white state with a very white university. I knew I was going to teach anthropology and black studies. I knew what I was walking into. I didn't walk in without an awareness of what was happening. But I also felt like I had the tools and the capacity to be a person who could, to be honest, help white folks do better. Like I knew that me living safely and the people I love being in a safer world required white people to do something about white supremacy. And some of us have the capacity and skills and ability to do that sometimes, but I had reached the end of my capacity that the emotional cost of it, the career cost of it, and just frankly, the anger and rage, like I just don't have that patience anymore. And so I'm ready to pass that baton to whomever else <laughs> would like to do it and can do it and is resourced to do it. But for me, black people have to be present and centered for me to do the work now. Yeah, I feel that too. I don't know if January 6th was like that moment necessarily, but it's just sort of another moment in time um, that just kind of reminds you where we're actually at. and. 
Um, obviously, I transitioned to this job pretty soon after that, um, or the summer after that happened. And um, I sort of take a similar stance, I think. You know, there's obviously people in every institution who are sort of like the cream of the crop of like white supremacy, you know, like like the ones that you get hired to really like work on. And while I'm not going to like dehumanize them and throw them, you know, to the wayside, I've actually decided to like not spend my time on them because they are a minority in the school, right? Like even though the whole school here might, the school of nursing that I work in might not um get everything i think there are a lot of people who want to learn and want to change and then there are those few that just don't care that i'm here and will do whatever they can to make sure i'm not here as soon as possible and so i'd rather not spend my energy on them but spend that time with people who want to be here who want to have these discussions um really supporting the students of color um the very few faculty of color that we have the two step two or three staff members of color we have right like doing work with them spending time with them building relationships with them that to me is kind of like where i'm more interested in spending my time these days um and also like i said earlier just sort of not doing anything that i don't like want to do or that takes energy that i don't want to give um especially giving it to people who i don't want to give it to um it it seems kind of i don't know <laughs> Like, it feels so wrong to say that, right? Like, that's not what I feel like I've, what have been, like, my values and the way that I've worked for the last, you know, seven years of my life. Um, or even sometimes, like, what I teach my students um, sometimes. But I feel like for me now, it is sort of like passing the baton and hopefully maybe, like, teaching some of those lessons that I learned to other people who have that energy or just have a different set of skills or desires or whatever it might be to do that work. Um, because I just don't always want to do that work anymore. You know, like it, it does feel like I do. Okay. I'm really bad with emotions. So I actually don't know what it feels. I just have to like pull up a list of emotions and, you know, like I'm an, I am a little bit like irritated with myself that, I wasn't able to like hang in there fully, right? I obviously mentioned I felt like really depressed um, a lot, uh, a lot of my life, you know, the last five years. Um, really like uncertain about like what's next, you know, for me in my career, but also just my life. Like, you know, am I even going to stay in the academy or not? All of those things are coming up to me as I sort of think about like how did I, how did I survive, and how am I like surviving now? And am I thriving? It feels very like capitalistic, but like I feel like if that's the way the world functions, then like at some level, like I also need to function in that way because it will just continue to like extract from you. And I think like I've heard that narrative from a lot of people who have been in the field longer and done this work longer. And I like, I'm at the point where I get it now, you know? Um, and so I'm still trying to find out like, what am I really inspired by? What am I really motivated by? Like, what's going to get me up in the morning? Like, what am I passionate about? Um, and that's like a whole different like part of doing this work that I haven't fully figured out yet. So I, 
I absolutely appreciate uh, some of of the 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 jewels you all are passing here. I was thinking about this notion of know your capacity um, and 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 pay attention to um, your own sort of sense of 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 health in this work, right? Uh, setting limits on your engagement and how you use your energy. Um, empowering others to 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 lead and do the work so this notion of passing the baton I, um, and then dan you ended with feeding your passion and and i think all of those things are are things i've tried to in my own work um be better about i absolutely uh do not check emails on the weekends now i don't have my work um on my phone um, my work email on my phone. So if there's an emergency, someone's going to have to text me and let me know about it because I'm not checking my phone or emails on the weekend. So these boundaries are, are things that help um, to to allow us to do a better job of of taking care of ourselves. Uh, the one thing I'll add that um, I think was a little helpful for me is I found some healthy ways to release my rage that was, um, you know, coming from from this engagement. And so, if you look at at, at some of my uh, more recent writings, you will see uh, a much more focused uh, energy and and criticality in 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 those writings. And that was uh, a a form of release for me. It's definitely much more personal writing and. And, and I, I suspect I benefit from being where I am in my career that I can now choose uh, more intently what I'm going to write about as opposed to writing for, you know, tenure or writing for uh, publication. Uh, but uh, I found those those last set of writings that I engaged in to be really um, helpful in releasing some of the rage that that built up over the, over the time. Uh, I know we're, we're getting close to time. We didn't want to make a shift back to sort of how this work benefits our students. And uh, I'm going to invite Omar in to, to, to take us through these last uh, uh, couple of minutes we have with, with some final questions for us. Awesome. Thank you so much, Frank. And thank you so much, Bianca and Deanne, for your honesty and your heartfelt um experiences through this process and i think you know i i really want to give a shout out to to frank and all of you thus far just for expressing the reality in this process of practicing anti-racist teaching because i think it's it's not as frank alluded to i don't think it's i don't think it's work that's very much supported and there's a lot a considerable amount of burnout and i think that I, at the, the more now as a doctoral student, my second year at, at UConn, like I'm seeing both sides of it myself as a student and then also in interacting with professors, seeing another element and another perspective to this process. And it's it is not easy work whatsoever. And so I, I, I kind of just want to give a shout out to all of you for engaging in this work and then also just for 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 telling it like it is. I think our, it must be like a breath of fresh air for our audience. Um, and so I, something I'm curious about just as a, as a student in this process is how, how students respond uh, 
to your approach to anti-racist teaching. And I think uh, a couple months ago, I actually, I, I turned 30 and I didn't think when I was a year ago, when I was 29, I was like, oh, I, I'm not going to feel the shift as much. I'm not going to, it's not going to be as intense, but sure enough, that decade, that three in front of the, the year is definitely a, a, a marks a difference. And so I'm just curious is, is all of you as scholars, as practitioners, um, as professionals, like, what do you see and what do y'all feel is on the horizon for the next generation of scholars and activists? And how does that inform the way that you instruct your students? Bianca, do you mind kind of getting us started with this question? Sure. Um, that's a really good question. Um, I've been I've been working on a book about pedagogy as organizing and organizing as pedagogy coming from um, trying to tease out the lessons I learned, like teaching the stuff that I teach in the way that I teach um, during these last few years since the movement for Black Lives and also organizing and being one of the kind of educated, educator-centered folks um, in my chapter of BLM. Um, and again, it's interesting because the last five or six years, so much has changed. Like our language has changed, our awareness of um, new frameworks and new visions for the future. I mean, if you had told me two years ago, we were going to have a national conversation about abolition, like openly, I would have been like, you are out of your mind. <laughs> um, and so, so much has changed. Um, and I think, so we haven't even like defined plantation politics. I, we sh I, so we wrote this book <laughs> because um, so much of what was happening in 2015 and the years following was an awareness for a lot of people at, at how deeply connected, at how deeply connected the the power dynamics and the 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 engines that make higher ed go are connected to these kind of previous moments of plantation life and culture. And so our argument in the book is that um, you can tease out really important connections between um, plantation life and culture from the past and how the institutions that we work at were both established and continue to operate. And that the exploitation of folks of color, but particularly like black people in a particular way, like black life, black death, um, black labor, black emotion, um, black leadership, right? How it's exploited and utilized to keep the university running. Um, and so this next generation, what, what I love about being in the classroom with my students um, is that they are growing up and grew up in this moment of movement building and protests. And they're bringing what they learned in the streets, in the neighborhoods, in their public schools, in their private schools to their training um, in this moment. I always want to emphasize, we did a book on plantation politics and campus rebellions. And I think the campus rebellions part is the part that always excites me, that there's a long history and legacy of student organizing and student activism that led, that leads faculty, that leads staff into doing transformative work on campuses. And so I don't know that I'm teaching them so much as much as they are teaching me and we're learning together, like how to create new world and what the tools are for world making in the next 10 years and the next 50 years. So that was a kind of unwieldy answer, but I think it's, 
I do what I do, hoping that I can give the students tools to think about things a little bit differently. And then they respond and teach me in the classroom and they push me, right? Like what we thought was radical five years ago is not really radical anymore. So they challenge me to think differently and deeply. Yeah, and I mean, I'll just ditto that. Um, it's I think it's aligned very similarly to, to the way I teach. You know, I always try to start my courses with just like history lessons, I guess. And even when I do presentations to campuses or whoever it is, it's always sort of like, here's what settler colonialism is. Like, here are some of the main like technologies of domination, and here's how they're still showing up today. And like as Bianca said at the end, and here are some frameworks for how we might understand what's going on today. Now, like, what do you want to do about it? <laughs> like, what do you want to do with this information? You know, I, I didn't think I was that old, but now like I am getting older and like I am much older than the students. If I teach undergrad, like the undergraduate students that I'm teaching, right? Like 20 years, that's like, that's a million lifetimes in today's world. And so like, who am I to really say, you know, this is the one way you should do it or do anything. But I can say like, here's what I do know. Here's what I know about the history. Here's what I know how we got here. Um, Here's some ways that I think about it. Like, what what do you want to do? How do you want to extend off of that that work? And you know, um, it's you know, it's providing the toolbox, right? Like using that metaphor, it's just providing the toolbox for students to then go out and and do what they um, feel is is needed in the world. And so, yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, I think I can keep up sometimes, but then there's always just something new, right? Um, and I think that that's really great, right? That's that's good progress to be making. I, I love the the uh, the focus on how we learn from our students. Uh, I, I think that's one of the reasons I continue to teach and I, I'm a few years older than everyone on this call. Uh, and 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 I am amazed at equally amazed at how much things have changed in, in the time that I've been in the academy. Um, and, and so anti-racist teaching and plantation politics is, is uh, you know, for me, a project to help uh, unleash, I, I've been thinking about it this way more recently, unleash the emancipatory imagination of our students uh, because uh, we have so much to learn and, and that creates so many different possibilities um, for, um, reimagining what these spaces can be like. I, I will admit it's hard as someone who who uh, appreciates structure and order in, in classrooms. It's it, it's it's hard to um, to maintain that when you are inviting uh, students into classrooms to think in uh, ways that 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 you haven't thought right and and so. Uh, it requires being open to allowing the space to go where it goes and, and being comfortable in your discomfort when that happens. And uh, that's something that, that, that's been a challenge, uh, but I've, I've gotten more used to it over, over, over time. Uh, I think as we're, as we're nearing the end, uh, you know, one of the questions we were thinking about is how do we see plantation politics as uh, a sort of anti-racist project, I, I think it's clear that it is. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because it, 
it, it grew out of a really uh, pivotal time, as Bianca mentioned, but in some ways, I think predated what was about to come, right? And so we had uh, no idea that the country would be once again embroiled in the way it was around the killing of Black uh, bodies, Black folks uh, left and right. And, um, and so the the plantation politics is is absolutely a tool that we hope folks can use to find new new ways of, of deconstructing, dismantling, uh, destroying uh, whatever the appropriate response is to some of the existing uh, or persisting remnants of of our plantation past. I wonder um, for 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 our guest here. Just final thoughts about how you see plantation politics as, as, as an anti-racist project and, and what possibilities perhaps exist uh, that uh, moving forward in the future for, for this work. It's something we've talked about a little bit, but um, uh, you know, one we haven't, we haven't answered yet, I, I would say. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that. Um... Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a, a deep alignment. I think, you know, obviously, there's sort of like the academic take, so you can read the chapters and you can kind of do that kind of analysis. Um, we've read the chapters many, many times, so like sometimes your brain's just like, okay, I'm done with that. Um, but I think for for me, um, it does a few things, maybe more like on an interpersonal level, if you will. Um, it helps me to understand like, what sorts of logics we utilize when interacting with people, obviously. It helps me understand maybe behavior, right? Like why somebody does something they do or doesn't want to do something that they do don't want to do. Um, I think it can um, help provide certain levels of like grace and empathy, um, right? And in, in interacting particularly with black people on campus. Um, so for me, those like interpersonal pieces as I'm trying to like get out of my like totally logical mind is really important for me, right? And maybe grasping more onto that emotional piece that Bianca loves to talk more about and write about and think about. Um, so for me, I think that that's a lot of what it helps me to do. And it always just sort of reminds me like how deeply embedded these these like plantation logics are embedded in our world and you know i mean obviously just the name can just trigger something and just say like this is so messed up like how can my analysis be even more critical and um, more intentional about what i'm doing um above and beyond any sort of other maybe analysis that i'm engaging in or framework that i'm utilizing you know, there's so much good stuff happening in this moment, even in this like moment where a lot of us are feeling a lot of um, tough emotions. Like when I watch the grad student led union organizing that is happening on campuses and like pay equity conversations that are happening and labor conversations, when I watch the still happening um, on campuses and in various streets, like protests against police violence, you know, for me, th those campus rebellions are the victories. Like when you were asking about like the cost of this work, like me seeing, participating, affirming, supporting, helping make room for, covering when possible, 
um, the students who are driving that work and driving the creation of more radical futures, like those are the victories. And so while people may look at the title of our book and think the rebellion part is like a, a sad part or a part we should run away from, I think what we're arguing in that book is that universities should really embrace those campus rebellions and take them as moments to assess like their mission statements and like if they're actually doing the things that they say they want to do, right? Um, the gift of plantation politics as a framework, and I, I, I was about to say, and I'm glad Dean said it, this grace part is really important. And I know some of the students listening might be like, this is the part they might get annoyed with me about, but um, so many of my colleagues, particularly my women of color colleagues, particularly my black women, um, scholar colleagues have been having the conversation in the past four years of the lack of grace that we experience from our Black students, from our students of color. And I think what happens is that plantation politics framework can really provide people who are located in higher ed to understand the different positionalities and different access to power and resources that we all have. Like, when are students actually the most powerful group to make change? When are staff and faculty and administrators, like, there is an analysis to that. And if you're gonna engage in organizing in these spaces, I think this framework can help you understand what are some of the restrictions that people like faculty have for a variety of reasons, and what are some of the restrictions that undergrads and graduate students and contingent faculty have. So using it as a tool to really not just, and I use just in quotes, do activism, but to sit down and understand the institution and how it works, like how it makes money, how it functions, how it punishes people that rebel and understand our different positionalities so that we can utilize the gift of our different positionalities. And that requires a profound amount of grace from all of us, but sometimes I want my students to recognize like how limited or how, what the strings are that we're constrained by, what the chains are that we're constrained by and not like, not to be literal. But as you go higher up, you be begin to have a different analysis of what the landscape is, right? And what you're operating in. And sometimes I need them to trust us, like trust in our commitment as we can trust them in their commitment and have grace for them. Thank you both. Um, Omar has already um, uh, sort of commented on the honesty and and deep appreciation for sharing your thoughts and, and reflections about this important work. And I just wanted to add to that, um, I think one of the unexpected gifts of, of this conversation was the ability uh, to, to reflect um, on a project that I know we all uh, gave a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of ourselves to uh, and to have the opportunity to reflect and, and, and think about the ways in which that work in particular impacted each of us was was not somewhere I, I, I expected us to go, but very much appreciate having had the opportunity to do that. So um, very much appreciate that and look forward to our, our continued collaborations, whatever shape or form that takes. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Williams and Dr. Squire, for being honest and vulnerable when speaking about the multi-layered cost that comes with this work. We're incredibly grateful for the tools you shared with us today and the reminder that activism in all of its capacities ought to be celebrated because it has the potential to bring about equitable change. 
As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.